Welcome to another segment of Northwest Passages, the program that features passages from books with a connection to the Pacific Northwest. I'm your host and producer, Douglas Furr, and today we're featuring our final passage from the book Snow Falling on Cedars by David Gutterson. In today's passage, we'll hear more of the details of the trial of a salmon fisherman accused of murder in a small town called Amity Cove on the Pacific Northwest coast. Here's Connie Furr reading from Snow Falling on Cedars. At eight in the morning on the third day of the trial, a dozen tall candles now lighting the courtroom in the manner of a chapel or sanctuary, Nels Gudmundson called his first witness. The wife of the accused man, Hatsu Miyamoto, came forward from the last row of seats in the gallery with her hair tightly bound to the back of her head and tucked up under an unadorned hat that threw a shadow over her eyes. As she passed through the swinging gate Nels Gudmundson held open for her, she stopped to look for a moment at her husband, who sat at the defendant's table immediately to her left, with his hands folded neatly in front of him. She nodded without altering her calm expression, and her husband nodded back in silence. He unclasped his hands, laid them on the table, and watched her eyes intently. The wife of the accused man appeared briefly, as if she might turn in his direction and go to him but instead she proceeded without hurry toward Ed Soames, who stood in front of the witness stand proffering the Old Testament patiently. When Hatsu Miyamoto had seated herself, Nels Gudmundson coughed three times into his fist and cleared the phlegm from his throat. Then he passed in front of the jury box with his thumbs once again hooked inside of his suspenders and his one good eye leaking tears. The arteries in his temples had begun to pulse, as they often did when he'd been sleepless. Like others there, he'd passed a difficult night with no electricity or heat. At 2.30, bitter with cold, he'd struck a match and held it close to the face of his pocket watch. He'd padded in his socks to the unlit bathroom and found the toilet water frozen in its bowl. Nels, flailing, his breath issuing forth in vaporous grunts, had broken out the ice with the handle of his toilet plunger propped himself against the wall, his lumbago plagued him mercilessly, and dribbled night water unsteadily. Then he'd climbed into bed again, curled up like an autumn leaf, every blanket in the house thrown over him, and lain without sleeping until dawn came. Now in the courtroom, the jurors could see that he had not shaved or combed his hair. He looked at least ten years older. His blind left pupil seemed especially transient and beyond his control this morning. It traveled in its own eccentric orbit. The gallery was as crowded as it has been throughout the trial. Many of the citizens gathered there wore overcoats, shoe rubbers, and woolen scarfs, having elected not to leave these things in the cloakroom. There'd been a rush to find a place to sit. They'd carried the smell of wet snow into the room, It had melted against the wool in their coats and were grateful to be in a warm place where something of interest was going forward. Stuffing their mittens and wool caps into their pockets, they settled in conscious of their extraordinary good fortune in having escaped temporarily from the snowstorm. As always, their demeanor was formally respectful. They took the law seriously and felt its majesty emanating toward them from the bench where Lou Fielding sat with his eyes half shut inscrutable and meditative, and from the way in which the jurors sat ruminating in rows on their elevated podium. The reporters, for their part, had focused their attention on the wife of the accused man, 
who wore a knife-pleated skirt on this day and a blouse with long darts through the shoulders. Her hand where it lay atop the Bible was graceful, and the planes of her face were smooth. One of the reporters, he'd lived in Japan just after the war, training automotive engineers to write manuals, was reminded of the calm of a geisha he'd witnessed performing the tea ceremony at Nara. The sight of Hatsu's face in profile elicited in him the smell of pine needles strewn in the courtyard outside the tea room. But inwardly, Hatsu felt no serenity. Her calm was a practiced disguise. For her husband, she knew, was a mystery to her and had been ever since he'd returned from his days as a soldier nine years before. He'd come home to San Pedro and they'd rented a cottage out on Bender Spring Road. It was a dead-end road overhung with alders. They could see no other homes. At night, Kabua was subject to disturbing dreams that sent him to the kitchen table in his slippers and bathrobe, where he sat drinking tea and staring. Hatsu found that she was married to a war veteran and that this was the crucial fact of her marriage. The war had elicited in him a persistent guilt that lay over his soul like a shadow. For her, this meant loving him in a manner she hadn't anticipated before he'd left for the war. There was nothing of charity in it, and she did not step lightly around his heart. Hatsu found that she was married to a war veteran, and that this was the crucial fact of her marriage. The war had elicited in him a persistent guilt that lay over his soul like a shadow. For her, this meant loving him in a manner she hadn't anticipated before he'd left for the war. There was nothing of charity in it, and she did not step lightly around his heart or indulge his sorrow or his whims. Instead, she brought herself to his sorrow completely, not to console him, but to give him time to become himself again. Without regrets, she honored the obligation she felt to him and was happy to efface herself. This gave her life a shape and meaning that were larger than her dream of farming strawberries from island soil and at the same time giving herself over to his wounds was both disturbing and rewarding. She sat across from him at the kitchen table at three o'clock in the morning while he stared in silence or talked or wept, and she took when she could a piece of his sorrow and stored it for him in her own heart. That was Connie Furr reading from Snow Falling on Cedars by David Gutterson and published by the Vintage Books Division of Random House. I'm your host and producer, Douglas Fur. Thanks for listening today. Northwest Passages is a KSQM Studios production.